Now, did you know that Barry Cryer actually chaired three shows in the first series of I'm Sorry, I Haven't a Clue before he settled into the role of panellist, the only time in his life when he was delighted not to get the job, which, of course, went to Humphrey Littleton. Let's hear him now in conversation, recorded on the 25th of March, 1999. Hello and welcome. A man known, loved and relied on by so many of us in the entertainment business. Indeed, a producer once said to him, talking of a script, I don't want it good, I just want it tomorrow. Well, in this case, he got it the next day and good. Today, I'm in conversation with Barry Cryer. <laughs> you're a great uh, person to interview at the moment because, of course, your autobiography... Uh, is recently out. Virgin 1299, but I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> it seems, I have to say, reading it, like a, like a slightly lonely childhood. Uh, yes. Um, my dad died when I was about five. My elder brother, who was nine years older than me, disappeared into the Merchant Navy, and then he came back home to Leeds. And it seemed to me at that age that he disappeared again immediately. He went, came down to London to work as a civil servant. So it was just uh, me and my mum, yeah. And, of course, going to school, presumably you, that was a fun experience. Oh, yeah, yeah. Little local school run by the Newman sisters, yes. Uh, one was called Hilda and the other one wasn't. I can't remember her name. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was happy. And then um, slightly more bleaker atmosphere, Talbot Road in Leeds. Uh, Mr and Mrs Gannon, husband and wife, who ran this school out of a, virtually a semi-detached house. They were a formidable couple. I don't want to over-dramatise it, but she, Mrs Gannon, w would actually... I wasn't <clears throat> involved in music when I was there for some reason, but some of the other kids would play the piano and they would get the uh, cane across the knuckles while they were playing. While they were playing? Yes. I think I mentioned it in the book. And years later, I went to see The Seventh Veil uh, and Todd and James Mason and he <clears throat> smashes her across the knuckles when You'll she, never when play she's the playing piano, the piano. If you don't play the piano for me, Francesca, you won't play it for anybody, whatever he said. And... Anybody sitting near me in the cinema must have wondered why I said Mrs. Gannon audibly. <laughs> <laughs> the memories that came back. And then you got a scholarship. You went to uh, you went to the local to Leeds yes, Grammar. Yes, Leeds, Leeds Grammar School. I went to yeah. And when did the when did the performing side of things come out? Because you started as a performer rather than a writer, really. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, at school, like lots of people did, I played uh, Falstaff. Enormous number of lines. You're like a sponge when you're young how you can learn lines. I'm having to learn lines at the moment for a musical and uh, they won't go in, but when you're a kid, you just soak them in. So I did uh, plays at school. Yeah. And you got the acting cup for all stuff, I think. Yeah, we, we shared it. John Bedhill, my mate, who played uh, Prince Hal, and I shared the acting cup, and we went up to get it from the then Princess Royal, and as she handed it to us, it came apart. The black bass, you know, the little plinth bit came off, so I gave John the plinth and held the cup up. And I thought, oh dear, looking back. Grabbing upstage. Yes, he got a laugh at speech day, and I thought, oh dear. Now, um, first time you'd got a public laugh? Yes. And it I think good. the midwife laughed quite a lot <laughs> years <laughs> earlier. But... <laughs> but yes, it, it was the first time good. with an audience and a real laugh reaction, yeah. The damage was done. Although I never had a vocational thing about Going into show business or anything. But I think you'd, you'd been a fan of, of radio comedy, hadn't you? Maybe oh, yes, very much so. Yeah. Here's, here's a little, a little aid memoir to those days, Barry. And uh, hello, hot, 
What are you doing with a face as long as Izzy Bond's top note? What do you mean by spreading the tale that I'd come into money? Well, you shouldn't wear mink corsets and a banana skin coat. You even offered to put a ring on my finger. Well, I couldn't get at your big toe. You got your boots on. I'm impervious to further insults from a stupid nincompoop. Are you suggesting that I'm nincompoopus mentis? I shall sue you for steak and kidney porpoise. What are you talking about? The law. Everything you say will be taken down, mended and put on again. <laughs> now, you're not going to ask me what Tommy Handley was like to work with, are you? I was going to ask you how you <laughs> brought his career on, Mary. You know, how you... How you now you should listen to him. Endless puns and jokes. He, well, he was from Liverpool, the spiritual home of so many great ones, and he was so fast. The, the humour is dated a lot now. If you listen to an old Itmar, uh, you might not sort of hold your sides with mirth, but you've you just got to admire the sheer skill the, and the you, speed. The, the technique is there. And Ted Kavanagh, who wrote them, virtually invented the, the idea of catchphrases, filling a show with catchphrases, which never dies. The fast show do it now. Any other favourites from that period, Barry? Anything else that really... Max Wall. Did you ever write for him? Uh, no, never wrote for him. I was a stagehand at Leeds Empire, uh, subsequently, and uh, the Great Wall came to play a week in Leeds. And I just, in, when I should have been working or picking something up, or <laughs> I would, I would watch him just twice the nightly. Watch, just stand. Yeah. I thought I want to be you, but even then I hadn't got this showbiz ambition. But I, that was just a job I went for, you know. No, but Barry, there must have been some bit around the very fact you were standing in the wings at the Leeds Variety. Uh, yeah, well, I'd been in the, the student shows, the rag reviews. And then uh, I was out of work, and I, I just went back to the theatre and asked for a job. Because you went from school, you did start a university course. Yes, in, uh, I'm BA Inglit failed. My first year results at university betrayed the fact that I hadn't been working. I'm ashamed looking back, totally responsible. And a guy turned up in Leeds and saw, to, to see somebody in a student show, not me, and saw me telling some jokes in something and offered me work. And what was that first work? The, the work was touring uh, with a... My mother couldn't speak of this. It was touring with strippers. I think the show was called Nudes of the World or We've Got Nothing On Tonight or something. To, <laughs> constant motif in my so-called career, Paul. Now, was this the days where they still had to stand still oh, in Oh, they tableau? had to stand still. So, so you... we used to go behind the scenery and try and make them giggle. <laughs> but in your professional part of the job, you went front cloth, presumably, while they set up the tableau yes. and did your five Yes, I was the bottom of the bill comic. You did about 12 minutes... Now, talking about the nude reviews, obviously that's how you migrated on, because you ended up at the windmill, the legend. I group. came down to London, and on a 17-day rail return ticket, what I thought I was going to do in London in 17 days, I think it was just a, it was a good deal, the price of the ticket. And on the 16th day, the day before... Sounds biblical, doesn't it? And on the 16th day... You created the day comedy. Before, <laughs> the day before the ticket ran out, I got an audition at the windmill. Six shows a day, six days a week. Now, this must have been just after the kind of the, the legendary days of the women when all yes. the ex-service guys came oh, out. Oh, I proved that. The, the legendary was, days... In, in its demise. Oh, but I worked there with a <clears throat> fellow called Bruce Forsyth. He was top of the bill when you... I were... never knew what happened to him, but he was top of the bill. <laughs> well, you say but that. prior, you're quite right, Paul, prior to... This was 1957. In the earlier 50s, had been Jimmy Edwards, Peter Sellers, Harry Seacombe. Wonderful gallery of people. But it was still going six shows a day, new tableau and, and yes, comics coming on Yes, 36 shows too, a week. Which was tough because they really didn't come to see you with audience. Oh, no, respect. they didn't come to see the comic. But it was just, just complete disinterest. They, they would open newspapers when you walked on. <laughs> and there's a marvellous comic called Jimmy Edmondson walked on and the man in the front row opened his paper and Jimmy said, oh, I see you brought your own comic. <laughs> <laughs> 
You learn not to be frightened. I mean, I learned <clears throat> to face hecklers later on in nightclubs and everything, but the, um, the windmill was just silence. You could hear the sound of your feet as you walked on the stage. So, I suppose, great, because, I mean, most comics have this horrible memory of dying occasionally, but you were yeah. dying 36 oh, times a yes. week. Oh, yes, I mean, Jimmy Edwards, God bless him, said, any comic who said, I tore them up at the windmill and got big laughs is a liar. He said, <laughs> somebody as good as him. Now and again, later in the day... Fifth or sixth show, it might pick up a bit. A couple of drinks on. As really. you rightly say, they hadn't come to see you. He'd, of course, the, the theatre was still run by this legendary man, Vivian Van Damme. Who... Vivian Van Damme, who, was, uh, who asked to be known as VD. He, he loved his nickname. <laughs> <laughs> and his daughter, Sheila, who was a great rally and racing driver. And uh, he was marvellous to me. But he was a real comedy professional, wasn't he? Oh, yes. The first day I worked there, I was in a state of shock because I auditioned at half past ten. And I was on the stage at half past twelve, not knowing what was happening, because he said, do you want to work here? And I said, oh, yes, thinking he meant three weeks on Monday <laughs> or next year. And he meant that day. And I went on in my ordinary clothes, and in those days we put pancake makeup on and borrowed some of that. And uh, I came off to the, after this highly successful silence of the first <laughs> show that day. And I was summoned to the great man's office, and he, I stood between the fish tank and the desk. And he said, do your act for me now. Go on, do it. And I, he made me do it all over again. And he's saying, don't like that one. I know a better one than that. That shouldn't be at the beginning. Put that at the end. And he had me in his office in between every show. That every day, show? Every show. And by the end of the day, I'd almost got a new act. He'd changed. He'd really reshaped and moulded what I was doing. Did that process really start you to think, actually, there's a, there's a science to this? You know, there is a... Oh, yes. I, I, it was a master class with, uh, with him. Just in one day, it was uh, amazing. And I was there for about seven months, and he was a sadist because the shows would run however many weeks, but you wouldn't know if you were going to be in the next show, whether you were still working. And, and Bruce was going through all this as well at the top of the bill. Yeah, Bruce was the only one who ever worked there. There were honours boards outside, names in gold leaf or whatever, and Bruce was the only uh, comic who ever worked there who had his name on the boards when he was still working there. But even he, I think, got to the point where he said, I'm going to open a tobacco stuff. Yes, that's right. <laughs> He'd been a double act with his wife, and then he became a single act as a comedian. And uh, he said to me one day, he said, oh, I've got as far as I've, uh, as far as I've got to get. Oh, I'm oh, fed up with all this. So I said, what are you going to do? He said, I've got to, I'd like a little shop. And the following year, he, he, um, he got the job as compo Sunday night at the Palladium, which was an enormous break for him. And I bumped into him in Kingsway in London. He'd just been to a press conference for the first... He was very nervous and frightened. He was going to do his first play on the Sunday. Live. And I said to him, what happened to the tobacconist? He said, postponed. <laughs> <laughs> postponed for 40 years currently. Yes, he still hasn't opened it. I don't still know. hasn't opened a tobacconist. You, you, on the other hand, really about this time that you moved more to writing. Oh, yes. Uh, I met an actress called Anna Quayle. And she was doing reviews. She was going to do one at the Fortune Theatre in London, that's even prior to Beyond the Fringe, which just knocked us all sideways and changed everything. And I wrote uh, one or two things for Anna in the show, so I was a theatre writer. And then uh, Danny LaRue came in to see the show and said, who wrote that? And asked me to write nightclub shows. And my friend Ted Dix playing the piano. So I became a nightclub writer. Then David Frost came in to... I've been so lucky. David came to see that David show. came to Danny LaRue's club and asked me to write for him. I became a television writer, so it was... Now, nice sequence. Very lucky. Let's go back to writing. Did, I mean, did you see that? Because I think, I think at this time you were suffering from extremely bad eczema. Oh, yes. Is, I mean, you were, foot job, yeah. there, was, there was pressure here, obviously. There was something going on inside. There was you. something going on, uh, and it all started to disappear when I got married. Draw your own conclusions. I don't know. Do you think that having had that experience uh, makes you... 
I, I, do you find yourself, uh, as a writer and in script meetings and so on, resistant to, you know, so much of comedy can be about, about laughing about people yeah, other I than Yeah, I think ourselves. you have your own taboos. I was devoted to The Goon Show, and uh, <laughs> Spike Milligan wrote a line, a door opened and there stood a, a tall man in a ginger hat with eczema or something, and I penned this enormously pompous letter about uh, making jokes about eczema. Uh, I obviously... Well, I don't know, you see, there are... It's what the joke is and who the individual is telling it. I would obviously not react warmly to jokes about skin problems. We all have our subjective reaction. But there's a, the taboos have fallen one by one, as yeah. you know. You've yeah. been working for some years, haven't you? To and break you know these that, taboos. <laughs> oh, yes, indeed. Did Spike reply, I have to ask you? No, no, no. It went to the agency. I never heard. I think I mentioned it to him once later. He said, uh, must have got lost in the post. <laughs> <laughs> So you got married, and I think, uh, actually, Danny was responsible for introducing you to... to yes, uh, this was a club called Winston's, before Danny had his own club. And uh, there was this girl there who'd been in uh, pantomime with Dan, playing Prince Charming, who's playing one of the ugly sisters. And that was it. And that's where I met Terry, my wife, at rehearsals. I'd never even been in a nightclub, and neither had she. And it was, uh, that was an education in itself. The show was 1.15 a.m., one show, one fifteen. One, one show, one fifteen. So the punters have had a big dinner. Oh, they're out of it. Some of them. <laughs> well, I was going to say. Yeah. But Danny's club, that was good time, Winston's, with a very tasty clientele who had one or two uh, disagreements and discussions with other people <laughs> involving various bits of metal. And uh, <laughs> but uh, no, you've got the picture. This was the the heyday of London's oh, gangland boy, West yes, End. Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah? Ronnie and Reggie used to come to Winston's. They did. Shows. Yeah. 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 And then we went to Hanover Square, when Danny had his own club, which became very grand. And was called the, Danny's? Uh, called Danny LaRue's. Right. And David Frost came in and... Yes, and, and David uh, came and in. And the business went to the these shows. The people who came in there, it's amazing. Uh, Princess Margaret and Lord Snowden, as, uh, Tony Armstrong Jones, as he then was, they used to come in, Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, Noel Coward, Judy Garland. It was amazing, the people who It came. really was the social thing yeah. at the time. That, and it would make you tune you up, make you pretty nervous doing a show to... The, we did a Noel Coward finale with Noel Coward since six feet Sitting away. In the audience. And to see this man, you, you're having the effrontery to sing one of his songs into his face, and he's sitting as near as you are to me, Paul, at this moment, uh, drawing on his Marlboro. And, uh, inscrutable, oh, inscrutable. Yes, inscrutable. And then came round afterwards to our communal dressing room. <laughs> and I, I looked at my watch when he left. He stayed two and three quarter hours. It wasn't a courtesy. In the course. dressing room? He sat on the table, dangling his... And just talked. And talked and made us laugh and remembered the whole show. And I'd parodied one of his songs. I'd, I'd stolen the song of his from a show called Ace of Clubs. And he suddenly said, um, who wrote that one at the beginning? And I thought, oh, God. I said, I did. And he patted me on the head and said, <laughs> nearly as good as mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, very, from the master. Very gentle. And then, as you say, that led directly because as part of this... Social glitterati, in comes the current glittering glitterati, Mr. Frost. Yes, yes, David came in and uh, then he asked me to uh, join the team on the Frost Report, which is where I met the whole of Monty whole Python, of who weren't yet Monty Python. So this extraordinary group of uh, writers and performers came together under the aegis of, uh, of David Frost. Uh, and by this time, Barry, you're a confirmed writer, you're, you're not performing anymore. Yes, I'd, I'd, uh, my agent, Roger Hancock, Tony's brother, and said, I don't want uh, a writer who gets out of bed at midday with a head full of cotton wool, you know, because I was working in the nightclub at night. So I gave that up and, and trusted Roger and he never let me down and became, I thought, 
take a deep breath and become a full-time writer. And went on to write, having written for David and, of course, The Two Runnies. I think, is it true? Can I just check with you, Barry, as a long-time producer of The Two Runnies? Did you invent the news desk? I think Jimmy Gilbert, uh, at the time, James Gilbert, uh, said, what are we going to do with these two? People come downstairs, people walk on, and blah, blah, blah. And I I think I said news at (laughs) ten. Like two newsreaders at a table. But nobody said, oh, that's what a brilliant idea. But that's what subsequently happened. And yet for happened. years afterwards... Yes, we I lay claim to it, and uh, if anyone's listening to this who disputes it, please ring um, Paul Jackson. Barry Crowther, no. who invented the news desk with you, <laughs> and I have to say, created a model that then for years after producers mm. producing shows used to say, well, what, how, what can we do for the news items? How can we do... Yeah. Because it just was such a glorious way... It became way an of, absolute convention, didn't it? Yeah. Institution. People trying to find different ways to do it and not obviously copy it. Uh, Barry, I, was, I asked for a list of, of those you had written for, I mean, on a regular basis, and I have to say it's two pages long, uh, and the simplest thing is to say I think it's anybody who's ever done a stand-up or sketch show on television in the last 30 years, so I won't read it out, but, I mean, it is an extraordinary list. Any, We'd lose the will to live well, if you, you read would. it out. <laughs> well, any, any particular favourites? I mean, what were the great relationships for you? Oh, well, the, of course, the... Having worked with Ronnie Corbett in nightclubs, and I met Ronnie Barker the year after I met Ronnie Corbett, they were friends of some years' standing by the time I was writing for them and knowing them. So that was <clears throat> wonderful. Eric and Ernie, of course, uh, although I always say um, Eddie Braben was the A-team, the great Braben. Well, of course, you knew you were in safe hands writing for Eric and Ernie. You knew that whatever happened, it, it was going to come out good. The chance other it would be funny. Oh, yes. What? And Kenny Everett. That was a well, wonderfully Kenny, I want, happy Kenny period. I want to come on to, but uh, obviously the good ones, Barry. I mean, without necessarily naming names, what, any bad experiences? Any that you think, I wouldn't go back there? Oh, anymore? yes. <laughs> <laughs> Diplomatically stated. <laughs> uh, so, you, you were in the 60s, as you say, absolutely connected, not only to this, if you like, maybe more traditional TV entertainment mm. with the two Ronnies and so on, but absolutely working with Cleese Chapman, Palin, yes. Palin Jones yeah. and so on. How did, how did that work? How did, did they see you as kind of an elder statesman in some way? David you? had an amazing sort of, you know, entrepreneurial quality, pulling sure. people together. He's a sort of practising catalyst, and he gets everybody together. <laughs> and he put me and Graham Chapman and Eric Idle together to write a sitcom for Ronnie Corbett. And this was absolutely fascinating because Graham and I discovered we've got exactly the same sense of humour but totally different backgrounds. And we went on to write a, a lot of sitcoms and Doctor in the House, a television series. But that was David. He could see that Graham and I could work together. You know, it, it was fascinating. You've done a lot of your uh, sitcom work, certainly, with partners, Barry. Do you find it better writing with a partner? Oh, or? invariably work with a partner, yes, because if you're having the, the famous block... If it's not happening, if you're sitting alone in a room, it's murder. But if you're with somebody else, something will happen, you hope. You bat the ideas to and fro and something will happen. Now, it must have been uh, full of challenges working with Graham, an extraordinary... Oh, yes, yes. Uh, I would go to his house in Highgate, Southwood Lane, and uh, he would be pouring a small amount of tonic into a large vodka, (laughs) half ten in the morning. And then we'd start writing... And about 12 o'clock, he'd say, Ooh, what about an early one? And that was the day shot. That was it. We so went you, up to the Angel in Highgate, yes. You got about an hour and a half in. That was it, yeah. It was funny and, and sad as well, of course. because. Well. But I admired him enormously because when it became a, a real problem, um, he just stopped. Now, I think one of these maybe slightly uh, inebriated lunches led to a meeting with one of your lifelong heroes. Didn't Graham put you in touch or encouraged you to get in touch? Oh, yes, yes. I was a bit slow there, wasn't I? Because wonderful feed, you ought to work for Oxfam. Um, 
No, I was always going on about J.B. Priestley. And uh, Graham said, oh, I'm so bored of you going on about J.B. Priestley. Why don't you ring him? That was Graham's approach to life. Do it. And I said, you can't ring somebody like J.B. Priestley. And he said, why not? And then I thought, wait a minute. Wendy at Yorkshire Television has this magic phone book with all the names in. So I rang Wendy and she said, they'd done a documentary about him and she gave me his phone number. Alveston outside Stratford-on-Avon. So suffused with this good lunch, I um, dialed this number and a nice woman answered. And I said, is Mr. Priestley in? And there was a click and silence. And I thought, oh, hello. And I thought, oh, my God. Sobered up in about ten <laughs> seconds flat. And we started talking. And I said, my name's Barry Cryer. He said, is it indeed? Which I thought was fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he said, what are you ringing about? And I said, well, uh, my mate, uh, Graham Chapman. And he actually said, Monty Python because he loved Monty Python. Okay. And then he said something that made me float on a pink cloud. He said, I've heard you on the wireless. So I thought, oh, my God, my idol's heard of me. So he said, what are you on about? So I said, well, we I thought, what can I say that won't worry him? What's the most innocuous thing I can say? I said, we'd like to have tea with you. <laughs> he said, you're bloody mad. <laughs> so I said, well, that's uh, our problem. He said, well, where are you coming from for tea? So I said, uh, London. He said, now I know you're mad. <laughs> Three o'clock Monday. All right, he said, I want you to know I'm giving up my walk. <laughs> so I so you hung and up and got the address. And formed uh, what became for you a long friendship. I took him to the Café Royal once, I thought that, that's his style. He'd never mentioned the Café Royal, but I thought that would be nice. And he had the long, uh, the, like, you remember the old Sandyman Port adverts? He had his big wide-brimmed black hat and a sort of cloak on, looking amazing. And I was walking down um, Piccadilly and cutting through to Regent Street with this amazing legend thinking oh I could die tomorrow now I'm walking along with JB in the sunshine and we went into the uh, Café Royal he said I haven't been here for 30 years and uh, an older waiter said nice to see you again Mr <laughs> <laughs> So you talked earlier uh, about Kenny Everett which was obviously one of the one of the uniquely successful shows, that, that, and you were a key worker. I think you and Kenny created that show together. Well, uh, well, uh, Ray Cameron, uh, who I worked with on Joker's Wild when I was a chairman with Comics Telling Jokes, he joined me full-time, and we wrote the shows with a lot of input from, uh, from Ev. That, that was a joyous period, uh, really enjoyable, on ITV and BBC. Because they started at Thames. We, we started at Thames just recording all day in the studio with no audience at all. Was well, that famous thing of the crew laughing, wasn't yes, it? Yes, and we, did, we wouldn't have insulted them by asking them to laugh. But on the other hand, it was the only TV show I've ever worked on where nobody ever said, quiet. <laughs> you just carried on talking and chuckling and laughing and throwing Everett in front of the camera. And he was, he'd always deliver something. He was, oh, it was a very happy time. An inspired relationship. I mean, that, that was a really groundbreaking show, uh, Well, we so. used the technology. We were rather proud of that because there was a thing called... Sorry, we won't get all technical thing called Quantel in those days you remember when the pitch used to spin round and split up and go narrow and all over the place people used it in music shows and things I think we were the first or one of the first shows to use it for comedy yeah uh, Kenny would be sitting on a sort of wooden block a cube uh, and then stand up and hold up this cube and it was actually the beginning of part two happening in front of your eyes on this big wooden square. We used to do all those sort of things. And there were some taste and decency issues, obviously, always well. Oh, yes, you? yes. I met Mary Whitehouse once, and I clasped her hand and said, thank you. And she looked bewildered, and I said, you made us. I work on the Kenny Everett show. 
and her eyes became double glazed. She moved away. She suddenly spotted somebody on the other side of the room. She wanted to. I don't, yes, that's what really moved Penn's people on by several oh, degrees, did. I think, didn't it? It was amazing publicity. But there was an incredible burst the first year of that show. It was winning stuff all over the place, and it was a very heady time because of the... And the bands and the people we had on, people like uh, Freddie Mercury and uh, Rod Stewart and Cliff and all that, they came on just... We were the sort of follow-on touring version of Eric and Ernie because we had big people on and insulted them. We had Cliff, uh, Cliff with a white wig and lines all over his face and a beard wheeled past Everett while Everett was talking and Everett looked and said, Ooh, it's Cliff going to make up. Which... Uh, <laughs> They were very happy for all this, and having water poured all over them and everything. It was lovely. Uh, and then you moved to the Beeb, where presumably yep. there was no censorship. I mean, freedom ruled, obviously. Uh, yes, I can't say. No, the, the one or two things we did at the Beeb that Thames had said we couldn't do. So <laughs> you brought well the bag over with you, did well you? Well done. It was a more solid setup insofar as it was Friday night recording. You know the routine, Paul. And uh, it was a bit of a straitjacket for Ev, I think, because he wasn't a comic. He was Kenny Everett. But he, he reacted pretty well. He, he was terrified of a studio audience to start with and then became very good at working with a studio audience, running about and mayhem. Now, while all this was going on, as you say, you were finding an outlet for you performing uh, various outlets as a performer, but perhaps most famously in one of the all-time great radio shows. I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. This was running, really, while you were doing the Everett shows. Let's just listen to a clip from Clue. <laughs> Our next round is another new one and has been sent in by Mr R.F. Preston of Leeds which he assures me has helped alleviate the tedium of wet camping holidays in Scotland with his wife and thought it might do the same for this programme. <laughs> he writes, it's called Knights of the Round Table and is based on words starting with the syllable Sir and that's spelled S-I-R-S-U-R or C-E-R. For example, the knight who was prone to running amok, circumstances beyond our control. <laughs> One point to me, Samantha. Or the intriguing night, Sir Rounded in Mystery. <laughs> okay, teams, any other possible? Would it be possible as an alternative if we could all go on a wet camping holiday in Scotland with his wife? <laughs> I booked mine halfway through that last game. <laughs> any other suggestions? Teams? Yes, indeed, I can give you one. The, the, the night of rupture, Sir Jekyll Appliance. <laughs> And the knight who likes a pint, Sir Osis of the Liver. <laughs> Sir Mon on the Mount. That's a knight to remember. Willie Rushton, of course, there. Oh, well. You subsequently went out on the road. In Eight a... years we toured in the theatre. In uh, What was the show called? Show called the show was called Two Old Farts in the Night. <laughs> uh, it was Willie's idea, the title. He said, we can't get done under the Trade Descriptions Act. <laughs> And, uh, which was true. But what you ended up playing you Wembley Arena or something, didn't you? you... Well, Dockland's Arena, Dockland. we played to 10,000 people, yes. Uh, so Badil and Newman's boast that they were the first arena comics. You've no. been there ages No, before. no, no. 10,000. And then we drove back into London, right slap into the poll tax riots. <laughs> and Willie said, until just now, I thought 10,000 was our largest audience. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in later years, Barry, if anything, I think your performing has, has taken off a bit. You, you've, <coughs> you've done a straight play, haven't you? You've done an eightborn. I did an eightborn last year, yes. I got very frightened because I'm not used to learning lines, the basic discipline, you know, that actors and actresses do as a matter of course. It's been said that there are only seven jokes in the world. Have you used any of them today? Two and a half. 
There aren't only seven jokes in the world. I'd refute that. There, there may be seven formulae. Yeah. Everything's recycled. You just change the name. In the 60s, I used to say about Harold Wilson, if he fell off a cliff, he'd swear he was going up. <laughs> and I said it the other night about Bill Clinton, and it still works. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Barry Cryer from me, Paul Jackson. Goodbye. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> Barry Cryer will be making one of his regular appearances in I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue on Monday evening at 7.30.